If you will, open with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll just read a few verses for right now. Starting in verse 14, this is the word of the Lord. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I want to give you a short exhortation this morning on this phrase that has become very dear to me. Remember God and fight for your brothers. It's quite quite the phrase. And it's something that I hope that just for today we can adopt this mindset. What is going to be my mindset today? Remember God and fight for my brothers. Obviously, sisters are included in that because what Nehemiah was talking about was the physical family actually sitting there in the context of that historical setting. But the broader application for us today is to fight for the family of God. To understand and feel the weight of what Nehemiah is saying here, it's very hard because we just kind of jumped in midstream To understand what's going on here, you need to understand a little bit of the historical situation of what was going on in Nehemiah's day. 140 years earlier from this context, which is in about 445 B.C., the Babylonians had come in and absolutely wiped out Jerusalem and Judea, really, but especially Jerusalem. They came in, they destroyed the temple, which was the kind of the epicenter, the center of worship and religious life for the Jews, and they destroyed the walls, which was their protection. They just totally annihilated it. However, around 90 years earlier from this situation, so after a period of about 50 years, the, uh, there was a change in power on the world scene. The Babylonians were taken over by the Persians, and the king of Persia, Cyprus, had a very lenient policy toward the Jews, and he actually allowed them to return So the Jews come back around this time after being away for many, many decades, and they start to try and rebuild the temple. And they actually do get the foundation laid, and over a period of about 20 years with some starts and stops, the foundation for the temple is finally finished. However, the wall was never rebuilt, and that's a big problem. And actually, it seems like in Ezra 4, when you read the context, there was a start to rebuild the wall, but then it was actually, it was opposed, and it's likely that what little they accomplished was then torn back down again. And like I said, this is a very, this is a critical thing um, to have a wall around your city in this time. It's the equivalent, like if you build a garden in Kirksville, and you don't put a fence around it. Basically, you've just made a contract with a local wildlife for a feeding program. <laughs> That's what a city without a wall was back in this time. It's just wide open. It's a free-for-all. And as long as that wall, down, wall is down, that city is basically defenseless. So here, since that rebuilt temple that is entirely unprotected, and here sits God's people that are unprotected, and tied up in this is the good of God's people And the honor of God himself. And so that's the context of Nehemiah. And in chapter 1, you may remember some of this. Nehemiah is inquiring from his brothers. You know, it's been 70 years since the 
Um, the temple was actually rebuilt probably a couple of decades before that there was this attempt, and it seems like maybe Nehemiah didn't know that it was thwarted and the wall wasn't rebuilt, and so he's asking about the people in Jerusalem, and he's asking about their welfare, and then he gets word that the wall is still down. And you may remember this story. It absolutely breaks his heart. He's just shattered. But what he does is pretty profound. He doesn't start a marketing program. He doesn't hold a rally or start some massive, you know, undertaking to try and get the people psyched up. He goes straight to God, straight to God, and he begins to pray and he begins to seek the Lord. And then once he get, is granted leave from his job there in the Persian capital of Susa, he goes to Jerusalem and inspects the walls. And I love it because he still doesn't talk to anybody. It says very specifically he didn't speak to anyone about this. He just goes riding around on this donkey looking at the wall and finally, when he has God's mind on the matter and determination, he is not trying to psych up the people and trying to get them ready. He just says, this wall is coming back up for the glory of God and the good of his people. And they set off on that. And there's some progress, but as with any move of God and anything that you try and do for the Lord, there is opposition, and let that be a lesson here. I, I actually was talking to someone a while back, and they were telling me, it seems like every time I try and do something from the Lord, like everything starts to go wrong. And I'm like, yes, yes. Jesus said through many trials and tribulations, you're going to enter the kingdom of God. Actually, Paul said that. But you're going to enter the kingdom of God. There's going to be trials in the Christian life. And that's what happens here. They start to try and rebuild this wall. And immediately they're met with opposition. And that becomes our immediate context in Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. And let's look through this a little bit here. Starting in verse 1. It says, Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry, and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it, the wall, for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break down their stone wall." What does Nehemiah do? Does he get to battling with them and arguing like about the physics of a fox? No. He goes straight to prayer. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in the land of their captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Those types of prayers bother us, right? Because you're thinking, well, gee, didn't Jesus say pray for your enemies? And he said, don't, don't blot out their sin, Lord. Don't blot out their sin. Let it come down on their own head. Don't forgive them. Punish them. Bring wrath upon them. There's a key to understanding that, which is an entirely different sermon, and I won't even try and go into it this morning, but it has to do with Nehemiah. This wasn't personal. This was not some kind of personal battle that he was in about his ego and he's going to fight back because he kind of feels shamed by these people talking about him. No, when you read Nehemiah, you get the utter 
uh, you, get, you come to the utter conclusion that this man loves God and he loves God's people and he cares very little about himself. And what had him so angry here, and one key to understanding what's going on in this passage, is this last phrase, is that when they said this, they demoralized the people of God. It is a very, very dangerous thing to discourage God's people. It's a very dangerous thing. Nehemiah was infuriated. You discouraged God's people. So he starts praying down judgment. Well, it goes on, and there is some success in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But opposition's usually never done, right? What makes a trial hard is not usually the initial trial, it's how long it gets drawn out. And that's what starts to happen here. It says in verse 7, it says, Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. Okay? Initially, they were just fine to talk. They just wanted to kind of talk some smack about this, kind of demoralize them, spread some gossip around, slander them a little bit, and they thought this will be the end of it. They're not going to go past this. But now they start to see God's doing something here. Like this wall, it used to be on the ground, and now it's up to half its height. And they are angry. And kind of reading through the names here, you get the feeling, as far as geography-wise, they are surrounded by their enemies. When it talks about the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdites, we're talking about, I think it's north, east, and west that this would be talking about here. So now they're surrounded by their enemies. And it says in verse 8, all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause a disturbance in it. Well, you'd think at this point Nehemiah is going to send a delegation. Like, we can talk about this, guys. Listen, you know, we can work this out. Maybe he's going to start a youth rally, get the youth fired up, get ready to fight. He doesn't do any of that, does he? He goes back to prayer. Verse 9, But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. And then comes a very critical section to understanding Nehemiah's exhortation there in verse 14. In 10, he says, thus it was said in Judah. So this is what's happening in Judah. They've started building the wall, and there's been some success, and the people were generally encouraged. But the opposition is just relentless And there's still half of a wall to build. And this is what happens. It says, thus it was said in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild this wall. So that's what the workers are saying. Well, what are the enemies saying? The enemies said in verse 11, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to the work. As if that's not enough, the neighbors nearby say this in verse 12. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you turned. It says, then I stationed Nehemiah men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and the families with their swords, spears, and bows. It's the hardest part of the trial. Discouragement is piling up on every side, and they are still knee-deep 
and rubble. And you can often find yourself there on what are called long track trials. Like I said, what makes a trial hard a lot of times and what makes a situation difficult is not the start of the thing. The start of the thing kind of has some shock value and you get discouraged and it can knock you off your feet a little bit. But when it's day after day, when you're dealing with people that are slandering you or making fun of you, if you're in school, even happens to adults, if you're dealing with money problems day after day, if you're dealing with lost kids that are burdening your soul day after day, And you've made a start in this thing, but now all you can hear in your ear is the enemy. And you're looking out, and there's still a lot of work to be done. And it doesn't look like you're going to be able to make any progress. That's the hardest part of the trial right there. It's not the start. It's the day after day after day. And there's no end in sight, and there's still work to be done. And when you look around, all you can see for miles is rocks. That's where Nehemiah comes in. I love this. It says this right here in verse 14. It says, When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke. Here is a man who cares about the people of God. He sees that the people of God are in trouble. And you remember this, that phrase. I I love that word. He was so mad that these people had demoralized God's children. He was upset about this, and when he looks out across a thing and he sees these guys are these guys are discouraged. All they see is rocks and rubble, and all they hear is the enemy, and he cannot sit still. It says he stood. He stood, he rose, and he spoke, and this is what he says. To the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers. I love that. What a mindset that we can take as far as what are we going to do? What are we trying to do here today? We're going to have a break here in a few minutes if I'm diligent to finish in time. And then we'll eat later, and then you'll go home, and then you may have some fellowship. You may be with your family. Situations will come up. What are we trying to do for the rest of the day? We're trying to remember God and fight for our brothers. That's what this time is about. And that's really what our life is about. So let's talk about this in two parts. Let's take this first one. Remember the Lord. When you are faced with a need to press on in your life, which means that you've met up against a trial, you've got people slandering you, or you've got something ahead of you that you're dreading, And your mind's just going over it. Or there's, like I said, there's financial problems or there's problems with your kids or just some situation that you are facing and you need to press on and you're discouraged. What is the first thing that you should do? The first thing you need to do is remember the Lord. When we're faced with a need to press on, we always have two choices and only two choices. You can focus on the rubble or you can remember that God is great and awesome. God is great and awesome. It is ever our tendency to obsess on the situations that we're facing. Like I said, if it's a money trial, the temptation is to sit there and obsess for hours. Where are the resources going to come from? Well, it could come from here. 
or it could come from there. Or you're just kind of going over all the situations in your mind. And that's not to disparage planning. Planning is good. Planning is important and commended, especially in the book of Proverbs. If you're not planning and things are blowing up, there's a different problem than this right here. You need to be planning. But there's a difference between planning and obsessing. There's a very big difference. Or maybe it's some relationship that there's a breach in with another brother or sister, and that relationship needs to be built up. The tendency a lot of times is to go over and over in your mind the past conversations that happened, what you wish you would have said differently. And the person's just kind of always talking in your mind. The tendency in every trial and most every situation we face is to focus on the rubble, but Nehemiah says, don't do that. Don't do that. Remember God. Remember God. And the good news this morning from this text is that God has grace for rubble dwellers. If you're someone who struggles in the rubble, and when you get into a trial and you need to press on, and your mind is fixated on what isn't done, what needs to be done, and those rocks seem to be getting higher and higher and higher, God has grace for you, and he can do for you what he did for Nehemiah. Remember this, what God did for Nehemiah. Remember what happens back in 1.4. Actually, let's look there briefly. Turn back to chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, they bring the bad news. And in verse 4, it says this. It says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, now look at this. This, is, this will encourage you. Because you don't, when I say remember the Lord, and that's the need in the Christian life, when you're facing trials that are going to draw you away from God, you want to follow God. If you're a Christian, you want to follow God. That's your deepest desire, is to press on to know the Lord. But every day we are faced with these things that are trying to pull us away, trying to pull our attention away. Trials that seem insurmountable. What am I going to do with this? When Nehemiah gets hit with this news, notice what happens to him. He's fasting and he's praying and he's weeping. He's not strong. And that's what's so encouraging. It's not like he's this guy that's standing up like, man, I'm, I'm really strong in this thing. And he immediately goes into action. For a while, all he can do is cry. So the encouraging thing, when I give the exhortation, remember the Lord in your trials, remember the Lord every day in your life, this is not for people that have a lot of strength. This is for people that have a little bit of faith. This exhortation is not for the super Christians. This exhortation is for anyone that is willing to choose remembering God over pitying themselves. That's the call. And this is encouraging because this is not for super Christians. This is not for Amy Carmichael and Hudson Taylor. This is for the rest of us that have jobs and go to school and just live normal lives. Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. Not like a strong person, but like a weak person. Faith. Faith in God. And then re look at what happens in his prayer in verse 5. This is the way he prays. He says, I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, 
the great and awesome God. Does that phrase sound familiar? Is that exactly what he said in chapter 4 to these people? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome? And so in chapter 4, when Nehemiah goes to help these people, he's feeding them on the same stuff that he's eating. The same stuff that he's giving them strength with is the stuff that he has gotten strength from. When he goes to pray, the very first thing he turns to is remember the Lord. He is great and he is awesome. Because that's what happens in a trial. That rubble starts to build up and it starts to eclipse things. And that wall seems so low and yet somehow so mighty in your mind that you can't see anything else. You've lost a vision of how big God is and all you can see is rocks for miles. But not Nehemiah. Not Nehemiah. He weeps before the Lord and in his weakness, he lifts his eyes before, to heaven and says, God, basically, I am weak, but you are great and awesome. That's what's needed. He goes on. The great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who keeps his commandments. He not only remembers God's person, he remembers God's works. So what do you do when you get into a trial? What do you do when you need to persevere in a trial? When you come to that place where the enemy's all around and there is still wall to be built yet, you look to God and you look at his person. He is great and awesome. You look at his works, his promises, the great covenant that Christ made his faithfulness. Let me give you this verse on this. I'll just read this, actually, from Psalm uh, 143. Psalm 143. The psalmist finds himself in a very similar type situation. In verse 4, he says, Therefore my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. Don't you love the psalmist? He is so not like normal church people, right? When you come to church, the thing to do is like, when you walk through that door, it's like, we, and now, what's that song? And now I'm happy all the day. I hope we never sing that again. Like that, that is just not true, Right? I mean, you can sing it in faith. Oh, God, please make me happy all the day. But the reality of it is, is most of the time we are going to be facing trials in life. And the temptation is, is to come in and exhaust yourself by acting like everything's fine and I have no trials. And the ones that I do have, I'm completely on top of them. It's just not true. Contrast that with the psalmist. My spirit is overwhelmed and my heart is appalled. Right? Right? We live there sometimes, but he doesn't stop there. And that's what's critical, is you don't stop there. And there's been a movement lately in the last decade or so that you stop there. Like the real thing that's in vogue is that you're a messy Christian. Like, man, I've got needs, and basically it's cool to have needs. Well, I'll say it's fine to have needs, but it's not fine to stop there. And he didn't. Verse 5, I remember the days of old. You see what he's doing? Circumstances try and keep your mind riveted down here. He's lifting up his eyes. And doesn't the psalmist talk about that a lot? I will lift up my eyes. And that's what has to happen during a trial. Not from strength, 
but from weakness, just like Nehemiah did. You lift your eyes up, and he says, I remember the days of old. He's getting outside of his immediate circumstances, and he is just going to walk back through who is God and what has he done. I meditate on all your doings. I muse on the work of your hands. That's the key here. And so what is the exhortation on this, on remembering the Lord? It's be in the word. Muse on all of the works of his hands. That's going to look differently for some people. I think it's great if you read through the Bible in a year. I've never found a verse that says you have to read through the Bible in a year. And I know people have different reading styles. There's some people like Mac Tomlinson who reads 18 chapters a day. I tried that plan for a half of a day. (laughs) Didn't work for me. Praise God, it does work for him. I'm a much slower reader and it takes longer to comprehend. And so I can either be who I am or I can be who I'm not. I'm going to be who I am and try and consistently stay in the word. Be in the word, brethren. And here's the other thing that the psalmist says. I will meditate on all your doings. Don't read the Bible primarily to find out what it says about you. The the exhortation is not to remember you, it's to remember the Lord. I don't know if some of you, um, if you went to public school, I don't know if this happens in homeschool, um, but you got a yearbook. Did anybody in school ever get a yearbook? Okay, now we're talking. All right, so this is going to work. Because you you may not be as vain as we were in Alabama, but you may have seen someone that was this vain. When you get your yearbook, the first thing that you do is you turn to the back of the yearbook where there's an index. People are laughing. You know exactly where I'm going with this. There's an index back there, and in this precious index is the list of every name and every page where that name is mentioned in the yearbook. And the first thing you do is look for all of your friends. No. <laughs> the first thing you do is find your name and where you are in, on every page of the yearbook and go look it up. Let me find where I am in this book. Don't read the Bible that way. There's a tendency to read the Bible of what can I get out of the Bible today for me. There's a subtle difference here, but read the Bible to remember God. That's the thing that will help you in your trial. When you're brought out of what is, it, what is in this for me, when you're completely lifted out of that scenario into the great and awesome God, you get there and it has a way of making you forget everything else that is going on with you and it, makes, it takes the edge off the trials. Where the, it's like one uh, songwriter says, he says, the aching will remain but the breaking will not. And there's a difference especially when it's a deep trial and it's just breaking your heart, you get a vision of the great and awesome God. There may be some aching that's still there in your heart, but the heartbreak will be gone because you are captivated with a sense that I serve a great and awesome God who is bigger than this wall. That's what's needed. Number two, very briefly. I love this exhortation. You would think he would stop at remember the Lord, right? Like that's, like that's plenty. Glory of God. Like that's all you need to say. But he doesn't. There's another motivation that's not often remembered in the Christian life. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers. Brethren, whether we like it or not, we are yoked together. You may remember my phrase ad nauseum. 
When you became one with Christ, you became one with each other. And I don't mind saying that all the time because when you go through the New Testament, Paul and Peter and the other writers are constantly laboring to cultivate this mentality that it's just not you and Jesus doing your own little thing down here. You are a part of a body. And oftentimes when Paul talks about regeneration, he talks about becoming one new man. Corporately, we are yoked to each other. We're a part of each other's life. And that means this. That means if there are battles that I'm not willing to fight in my life, if there are things that I am not willing to persevere through and press through, it's going to affect you. And that means if there are things and battles in your life that you're not willing to persevere through, it's going to affect me. I remember watching some tapes by a very, very dear brother, a godly man. And it's out of hours and hours of teaching, this is probably the thing that stuck with me the most, is he said, in the midst of all this wonderful high theology, he said, when I am tempted to look at things on the Internet that I know that I shouldn't have, I think of the people in this church and what it would do to them if they knew that I had fallen. Now, brothers, sisters, is there grace for the falling? Absolutely. And I want this place to be a place where we can come and say, man, I am struggling with whatever that may be. But let one of the motivations in your Christian life be, I am going to press through in this thing for my brothers and my sisters because in some way, in the providence of God and the way that God has ordered the world and his kingdom, if I am not fighting, it's going to affect those around me. I love Francis Schaeffer's statement, no little people, no little places. There's no such thing as an insignificant Christian in the kingdom of God, and there is no such thing as an insignificant action. When you are tempted to draw back and settle down because the rubble is piling up, remember, I'm going to keep fighting by remembering God, but I'm also going to fight because my brothers... My brothers, I think it means that, but it also means that we shouldn't just think of fighting our own battles, which is a temptation, especially if you have a lot of battles. And I'll wrap up here very quickly. It starts with awareness. That's one of the big things that needs to be cultivated. I know I've struggled with it in my own life. When I get busy and have a lot of things going on, I'm just not as aware as I need to be. I'm not looking out. I'm not noticing what other people should go through. But not Nehemiah. When he saw their fear, it says he stood up. He wouldn't stay seated. He wouldn't stand idly by. And so the first thing that we need to cultivate is, God, help me be the kind of person that notices when somebody's struggling. God, help me be the kind of person that notices when trials are building up. I don't want to just live for my own little kingdom and fight my own little battles. Help me to be the kind of person that fights for my brothers. What's needed in this? Well, first of all, remind them of truth. And isn't that what Nehemiah does here? What do we need to do? How do we fight for our brothers? Remind them of truth. He goes to me and says, remember God. Isn't that what you need? That's what helped us so much. When we were going through that trial with Jackson, it's like Verizon was getting, their network was getting hammered with text messages of Bible verses. I probably got the Bible two times over in its entire length. I was just having my quiet time through text. 
because so many people were texting us. Text people verses. Tell people verses. Get truth in there. Later on, later on when Nehemiah is trying to encourage him, he says this. He goes to him and says, our God will fight for us. That's what people need to hear. When, when you're on one of these trials and you, you have such desperate needs and it seems hopeless, you, oh God, send us to other people's lives to say, hey, God will fight for you. Don't forget that. Our God will fight for us. So when we're fighting for our brothers and in this, in this, section, in this section of needing this fight, remember, let's cultivate awareness of what's going on around us and let's be the people that are in there giving truth to one another. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much this morning for your word that doesn't stand outside of us just making these demands that can't be fulfilled. But thank you so much for grace. Grace like you gave Nehemiah, Lord, to fight when the, when the rubble's still piling up and it's rocks for miles to keep fighting. God, help us to be the kind of people that remember you and fight for our brothers. In Christ's name, amen.